Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today, myself and Danielle, written in the Star Wars, are going to be talking about The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Snakes and Songbirds. Wait, no. It's The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which personally, I think some editor got very wrong, but that's not what we're here to talk about. This isn't going to be a content review. We're going to be talking about the book and the movie from the perspective of the ethical questions, what does it mean to be a villain, a creation story, uh, the, the wonderful characters in this, the Hunger Games, all the rest. So, Danielle, let me just say welcome, and do you want to uh, give folks a quick reminder on where you are in terms of the Hunger Games? Because this is a topic we've had you on before. Yes, I have been a Hunger Games fan since I was 15 years old. And mm-hmm. I'm 29 now, so quite a long time. But I only recently reread them uh, because I wanted to read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes because I'd kind of let it pass me by when it first came out. And um, with the movie coming out earlier this summer, I was like, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna be back in my era, my Hunger Games era. Yeah. So I reread the books, which we talked about, rewatched the movies, and um, then read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes and loved it. Yeah. And then watched the movie and loved it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. It's, I, And I got to have a kind of fun journey because I've been on a road trip. So I read the book maybe three or four weeks ago, uh, maybe even longer than that, saw the movie on Tuesday, and then while driving home, I'm sorry, saw the movie on Monday, and then while driving home on Tuesday and Wednesday, listened to the book on tape because I had about a 17-hour drive, and it was like a 16-hour book on tape. And it was really great. And... You know, as normal, we'll probably have some kind of review-type thoughts, but a lot of this we're going to focus more on the ethical questions that are raised, particularly in some of the differences between the book and the movie, because I think they do some very interesting things, as well as saying a lot about how does the perspective of us as the audience or the reader change how we experience things. That's something we talked about somewhat with The Hunger Games, and I think, once again, the first-person reader experience versus the first-person narrator in a book that you don't get in the movie definitely changes things. Let me just do a quick plot summary for those who haven't seen it yet or or aren't going to see it and just want to, you know, just be part of the conversation. Because I think the topics we're going to discuss are pretty relevant to a wider thing. Uh, This is the origin story to an extent. It is certainly an important part of Coriolanus Snow's journey on his path to becoming president. Um, The president of the Hunger Games, of course, the the Donald Sutherland character. And we start out um, during the war, during the great, uh, the the great kind of civil war of the last time the districts rose up and the capital's final victory, but really learned that it was very close and that um, in the capital things were really horrible for a while and there was a lot of deprivation and starvation and bombs going off and all these kind of terrible things. Things were just as bad in the capital in, in the districts, of course, but we're seeing this all through the capital's eyes. And then we flash forward to when Snow is 18. It's the it's the tenth anniversary of the Hunger Games, so it's the tenth Hunger Games, um, and he, as a graduating student of the Premier Academy, is is a bunch of those students are made mentors of the the Hunger Games tributes, and we get to see just how different the Hunger Games was back then, and how a lot of the ideas that we come to know by the original trilogy were just getting started here, and that Cornelius Snow actually is a big part of creating some of them. And so it's a lot of great stuff about sort of the philosophy and the ideas of the Hunger Games and what makes them work uh, and what makes them so horrible. And there's a lot of great stuff about the tributes. Uh, we, of course, get a new set of tributes. Cornelia Snow winds up being the mentor to Lucy Gray Baird, who is from our favorite District 12. And they form a bond because he's one of the only mentors who kind of cares for her. 
and and here again there's a big difference in the book and the movie versus how much you you get the sense that he has genuine feelings for her versus he is using her for his own advancement because we find out that his family is actually quite poor in the capital now and he really needs this big award so that he can go on and do well and take care of his family and take care of himself etc um lots of things happen there are attacks uh, there's a rebel attack on the arena where the Hunger Games is taking place. Some people get killed. The Hunger Games people are being just treated horribly. This is not the days where, you know, Katniss and all the rest get to be in nice uh, hotel rooms and nice meals. Uh, but eventually, Lucy Gray does win the um, Hunger Games in large part, uh, well, a large part due to her own awesomeness, but also in part through some help from uh, Coriolanus Snow, some of which is legitimate, some of which is cheating by the rules, at least of that time. Although you could also just say he, there are rules where no one told him not to. Um, <laughs> but we find out that he's kind of caught up in a power game among some of the powerful people out in who rule the Hunger Games and who kind of rule the capital, Pan Am, uh, in large part having to do with his father, who we found out was a big part of starting the Hunger Games, was a, a general in the Peacekeeper back in the war. He gets punished for his cheating instead of rewarded the way he thought he should be. He gets sent out to the districts as just a trainee peacekeeper where he does run into Lucy, Lucy Gray Baird again. And the two of them kind of rekindle where they were. They build a romance. They, and they get involved in some uh, things that are going on in the district with both kind of a lover's quarrel that she's involved with still from her horrible ex as well as just some actual rebel activity, although it's pretty minor. Um, it, it gets to a situation where it seems like the two of them have to run away. They start to run away together, and then Snow realizes he doesn't actually have to run away. Right about the same time that um, Lucy Gray realizes he's not been honest with her about some of the things he's done. And at the end, they wind up um, fighting, and he goes out hunting her. I'm giving a huge summary of all of this kind of stuff at the moment. <laughs> Uh, as well as leaving out one very important character. And she tries to kill him by leaving a snake wrapped up in a scarf that he gave her. Um, he tries to shoot her. And we end the book having no idea what actually happened to her. Like, did he never finds her body. Um, she sings a little bit after he sh sh fires at her, but then he fires at her again, and we never hear her again. It's totally left up in the open. Um, and so that's kind of the overall plot summary, but I feel like in many ways the, like... And there's some more details we'll definitely get into as we go along. Um, but yeah, Danielle, I'd say, what, what did I leave out? And kind of what's, been, what's your overall thoughts on the story? Well, I guess um, to say what, what you left out, the most important to me is um, mm -hmm. my beloved uh, Sejanus Plinth, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> baby boy. Um, uh, he is um, Coriolanus's quote unquote friend <laughs> because mm -hmm. um he snow has very different feelings about him than i think sejanus had about him or at least that's what he lets on anyway and um i think he's a he's he's like if you consider you know in the hunger games the like main three to be like snow Peta, and katniss then i view sejanus to be like the third of lucy gray baird mm -hmm. and and uh, snow yeah um, but overall, my thoughts on that, on the story are, it was so much better than I thought it was going to be the story, just even from the book, mm -hmm. because I remember when the book first came out, so many people were complaining about it because they didn't want a villain origin story. They didn't want 
um, to humanize Snow. They didn't want to see it, anything from his perspective because he was just another evil man. And I could understand that on on some level because I didn't want a Joker story for him. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. like, I don't want to understand why he is the way he is because sometimes people are just awful. Mm. <laughs> they make those choices and they're awful. They didn't have any of those pushes. And I should have known to trust Suzanne Collins with this because yep. she's like Lucy Gray Baird. She doesn't sing unless she has a reason to. And mm-hmm. she doesn't she doesn't write unless she has a reason to for this store for this world. And the the story isn't a Joker story for Snow. Yeah. It's it's much more an examination, in my opinion, of of nature versus nurture, of of how we can be the driving force of that nurture into evil. It doesn't mm-hmm. just have to be other people. It can be ourselves as well. And I thought that was such a smart way to do it. And I worry though, that some people don't see it that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but that's, that. that's another, another thing to get into later, maybe. But overall, I really, really liked it. And I was worried that the movie would be much more of a villain origin story than mm-hmm. what the book is. And though I think they were kinder, to snow a little bit um, because it is hard to transfer all of the the third person thoughts we get from him onto screen i think they did a pretty good job of by the end of the movie it's very clear that he made these choices and he had ample opportunity not to and ample reason not to and he still did i think that's a really good way to put it we'll get into the book versus the movie but i do completely agree i think the the book the movie is a lot more sympathetic to him in part because you don't get his inner monologue as much but i do agree with you i think like as i was watching it and, and also, but also reading it one of the things that really struck me is this is a strange movie because almost always when you tell this story either lucy baird is the protagonist and you get it from her perspective which i think in many ways hunger games is or sejanus is mm-hmm. the is the protagonist and just to fill in that a bit more uh sejanus we find out is the child of Someone from the districts and his family is very rich. They were huge munitions sales. They they basically were war profiteers. Uh, they sold money to sold weapons to the capital during the war, enough to kind of move to the capital. And it's very much a kind of like nouveau riche versus old established rich, with the, you know, the families like Snow having all of this like resentment and, and anger and sort of like he's just from the districts, but of course they're doing so well financially. With Snow, and, and I think this comes out much more in the book, having mu- even more of that, like he very much has the entitlement of mm-hmm. the person who has like all the name and all the nobility, but doesn't actually have the money anymore. And so he thinks Sejanus is taking what's his and all this. And um, and I think in the, in the movies, they not only don't show his inner monologue, but they make more of a conscious decision to make it more that they're good friends. Like yeah. the he has a picture... Uh, Coriolanus has a picture of him and Sejanus, whereas in the book, Coriolanus just thinks of Sejanus as a hanger-on. And like you said, there's a very different perspective on their friendship. Um, But anyway, the point being that Sejanus is, as a child of the district, they wind up in what I think is very intentional, the cruelty of it. Um, He is asked to be a mentor to a kid from his own district who was in his class with him. And this really breaks him. And he has, at one point, he tries to go into the arena to help and, and he really becomes this incredibly sympathetic figure because, of course, none of the other mentors or students like him because they think he's still district. But to the tributes, he's just one more rich kid from the capital and they're just as likely to kill him. And 
he winds up having a lot of these adventures with Coriolanus and kind of towards the end, Coriolanus almost um, finds out that Sejanus has gone to the, is, is also a peacekeeper, has gone to the district with him. And Sejanus is trying to help the rebels, but not in a huge, like, let's kill all the capital people way, just in a, like, let's just run away kind of a way. And um, Coriolanus winds up betraying him and, and that gets him a lot of power, but also gets Sejanus killed. Yeah, and I think it's it's also key to Sejanus's character to point out that the whole reason he was helping was because he didn't want an innocent woman to be killed. He mm-hmm. didn't want to watch her die because, it, long story short, she didn't. She just screamed at having to watch her lover be executed right. in front of her, and because of that, the peacekeepers were going to execute her as well. And right. Sejanus couldn't stand that because he genuinely has such a pure soul. Mm-hmm. And he teamed up with a few of the people in District 12 who were trying to get her out and they were going to leave. I don't even necessarily know if they'd, if they'd be counted as... I mean, I guess they did consider themselves to be rebels because they were acting against the capital. Yep. Um, but as far as like a bigger force such as we see in the Hunger Games trilogy, they weren't even a part of anything like that. They were just trying to, yeah. to save their lives. And it's so sad that that's all Sejanus wanted to do was save people and and do good and in the act of trying to do that he got mm. he did he didn't get himself killed snow got him killed which is so yeah. awful yeah i mean he he was taking a lot of risks but he he trusted coriolanus yeah. and coriolanus betrayed him and he it, was very naive i will say that about sejanus i don't think mm-hmm. he was weak i think he was naive and Agreed. um he was also 17 years old <laughs> like yeah. like there's there's that idealism you have i think as a as a 17 year old who 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 maybe has such a sense of justice and right and wrong, but doesn't mm-hmm. yet know that the people you trust aren't necessarily trustworthy. Yeah. And he doesn't have an idea of that, that specific type of manipulation that Snow was exhibiting. Yeah, I think it's very true. I think it's very true. And like I said, I think most of the time if we got this movie, it's either about Lucy Gray herself or it's about Sejanus becoming the hero or it's about Coriolanus choosing to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And instead, it's the movie where the villain who becomes a hero gets given the choice, but chooses not to. Yeah. Um, couple. Of, I, I want to kind of start with a general point about what this movie has and what the book has to say about, you know, how people are treated and stuff like that before we get into that question of Coriolanus as a villain and, and all of that. First, just one quick note. The hanging that you mentioned winds up being the inspiration for Lucy Gray to write The Hanging Tree which becomes such a big part. And I, there's a couple ways in which I think they make things in this movie line up well with the Hunger Games and in the book, which I didn't, it was a little too cutesy for me, but I did Mm -hmm. think that was perfect of how she writes the Hunger, the, the Hanging Tree song. Um, But one thing I was really noting, and we talked about this somewhat during the Hunger Games, we talked about a lot of how from the, those movies are really great at showing the effects of oppression and how oppression makes it really hard to even conceive of fighting back and things like that from the district's perspective. What I love here is how well it shows oppression from the, the capital's perspective. Mm-hmm. Because I think it does, and we talk about this, but I think it does a very good job of never justifying, but helping you to, exp- helping you to understand the negative cycle that takes people to these places. And yeah. frankly, like, and I don't want to get this into a huge political thing. And obviously this wasn't happening. But I was, I was reading the book, but then especially while watching the movie because of what's going on, 
I was seeing Pan Am as Israel, mm-hmm. you know, in term, not that I'm, I think I have huge problems with the Israeli government today. I'm not saying that they're doing the Hunger Games necessarily by any means, but they're doing horrible war crimes. But the, the extent of, like, you do see that people in the capital were almost annihilated themselves mm-hmm. and that they had this real sense of, we have to control this situation or else we are literally all going to die without ever thinking of, what was the horrible injustices we were doing that caused them to fight us to that point that we were almost all going to die? Mm-hmm. And, and one of the kind of lessons that Viola Davis, in the role of her career, if she's not <laughs> nominated for supporting actress, like, please burn things down um, in a nonviolent way. You know what I mean? Um, she's teaching Snow throughout the book. And one of the things that she's trying to get him to learn is that the war is never over. And that we have to always keep the districts down because they're always going to hate us. And so we have to always manage their hate and keep them hating each other and all this kind of stuff. And to me, like when I listen to people talk about, you know, why they think Israel has to, you know, do the things it's doing. That's a lot of what I hear often, you know, and I'm singling out that one situation because that's in the news. But I think that's true always. You know, you go back and listen to um colonialists try and justify the treatment of indigenous people, um, whether it's in Americas, India, Australia, any of it. And almost always they get to a place of they're going to all wipe us out. We have to do this in self-defense, you know, mm-hmm. without as well as all of the like we're the more civilized. Look at how, you know, we're going to treat them like animals and then say, oh, they're just animals like. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, yeah. So that uh, I got another. So, yeah, that's where I kind of saw it. I'm wondering if you had any of those kind of same thoughts, either with the book or the movie, about that particular situation or just those situations in general. Absolutely. Um, when I watched the movie, it was it was really hard to, like, I can't separate myself from it. Like, I, I can't mm-hmm. separate what I see on on the screen and now, you know, when I go back and read certain sections of it from what is happening. And... It was really hard, and it was a really surreal experience, I think, to see people who could. Yeah. And and who were treating the the games portion of the movie as like a as like a game, <laughs> like like the capital mm-hmm. citizens do, and like hearing people um, be really like just be like, oh, drink the water bottle already, the water bottle that Lucy Gray had poisoned, and mm-hmm. or or being getting mad at High Bottom for the way he treats Snow, and and I was just I was just like that's that's not the point. Like you, you shouldn't yeah. be rooting for the, the tributes to die. You shouldn't, you know, high bottom is trying to prevent the hunger games from becoming what he sees snow can make it and, mm-hmm. and all of these things. And so it was, it was just a really surreal experience. I think to see people doing nothing but enjoying it mm-hmm. whenever I enjoyed it, but I couldn't separate myself from like, every time I saw a tribute die, I saw the countless, you know, videos and, and, and photos I've seen from Palestine and, um, or from Gaza. And I, I just, it was, it was really hard. And I think that what you said about, about how like going, going back to like colonial thinking as well, really ties into what Suzanne Collins was doing with this story, because Mm -hmm. in the special edition of the paperback version of the book there's a Q&A at the back and she goes into great detail about about the inspirations for this and what she pulled for this and it has a lot to do with uh, 18th and 19th century philosophy 
And mm-hmm. a lot of that philosophy is some of it, like specifically what's used for snow and for gall is um, talking about why the civilized portion of, of the world needs mm-hmm. to exert control over the uncivilized portion of the world and what will happen if it doesn't and, and how they're, they're so uncivilized, the way that they live is so uncivilized or, you know, quote unquote barbaric that if we allow this to continue, it's going to infiltrate us and we'll become that and we can't yeah. become that. And, and that is like, that's exactly what you see in, in the yep. frame of thoughts in the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And that's why I think it's such a smart way to go about this because it truly is a philosophical examination made uh, kind of like palatable for other readers who maybe aren't as into like philosophy or like the philo- yeah. philosophical way of thinking. They haven't studied it maybe. And it, it's just, it's, it's made a lot easier to consume but done in such a really a really good and well thought out way. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us, uh, I, I can't speak for the non-Americans or certainly people in a lot of different schools, but I know a lot of us in public school or private school, you know, ninth grade is either your kind of like European history or just government civics class. You read Hobbes and you read Locke and you mm-hmm. understood like Hobbes think it's all a state of nature and so we need strong government and Locke thought, no, no, man is fundamentally good. And that's like, you're right, the, like the first two pages of the dedication is basically just like, the history of the Enlightenment all yeah. summed up, you know, right there. And, and yeah, and it's – I love what you just said there because that's kind of what this podcast has always been about is is recognizing those pieces of media where, yeah, you don't need to, like, read about critical race theory. Just listen to Falcon talking about mm-hmm. how even as Captain America, he gets tr- – like, the, the show Falcon and Winter Soldier is critical race theory on screen, you know, but it's it, but it's a fun superhero show, and and same thing I think with this, like this is Enlightenment philosophy mm-hmm. experiments, and and literally experiments. The Doctor who, uh, I think her name is Doctor Gall. I just saw Viola Davis with crazy <laughs> uh, contact lens and just amazing acting. Um, um, but her character like really just is all about the experiment of all of this, and in a horrifying way. And one of the things I think is really interesting is how this this time period and Snow's a big part of it is about realizing like the Hunger Games can be not only just this horrible thing, but this spectacle, you know? And so, for example, like they never explicitly say this, but in this, all of the tributes basically like see each other as the same. And you think about how you get to 65 years later where most of the tributes see like District 1, 2, and 4 as the lackeys of the capital to the point that they lo- they're the careers and, you know, Katniss becoming friends with Finnick is a really big deal because it's breaking down that barrier. And that's a barrier that Snow helps create because he realizes watching this that, wait, no, we should do divide and conquer. We should treat them really well so they have hope. You know, it's just, it's incredibly insidious and very well done. Is It really was because when I read the book... I had somehow managed to like not read, see anything about it at all. So all I knew was that it was from Snow's perspective, or at least mm-hmm. partially was from Snow's perspective. That's all I knew. I didn't even know how old he was going to be in it, what was going to happen, anything. And so when I read it and I started to see how, how the Hunger Games were being presented 10 years in, and it was nothing like what we see in the trilogy, I was like, oh my God, this is like... If it, the only villain origin story here is the villain origin story of the Hunger Games, really, <laughs> like, yeah. like this is how the Hunger Games became what we know it to be with the trilogy, and I thought that was such a 
it now seems like an obvious choice to do, but I don't think anyone was expecting it really yeah. that, that it wasn't always like it, that it, it was yeah. on the verge of collapse and who comes in and saves it. Coriolana snow. Cause of course he does. Yeah. He really does. He really does. And it's, yeah, and so let's get into Coriolanus himself and this whole idea of is it a vi- origin story or not because – and here's where I think the books and the movie differ the most. Mm. But we can kind of talk about – so maybe focus more on kind of the books to start with. Here's my feeling on him. I, I feel like this is often a villain origin story. I think what we think that means is a person who is fundamentally good – we see a lot of bad things happen to them and they get manipulated and they get, you know, into their own inner darkness and eventually they take a dark turn and become the villain that we know. And I agree with you, that is 100% not his villain. That is not Snow in the slightest. Mm -hmm. To me, and and also because that often can be used, therefore, as kind of a justification, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's not Anakin's fault. Oh, it's not, you know, the Joker's fault, you know, et cetera, et cetera. To me, I think what I like so much about this is there's never any question that that Snow is not to blame or Snow is not, you know, uh, and the book especially, like, you know, in some ways I feel like it's an incel origin story because it's very much (laughs) like he has all of this, like, clearly from his mind, him being wronged by Lucy Gray is what he would probably say is his origin story. Mm. But a big part of why he does that is because he goes in the whole time thinking she's mine. Mm-hmm. She, I deserve her. I won her. And now she's not, you know, it's it's the, like, it's not exactly the thing, but, like, it's you know, it's the same kind of idea of, oh, I got friend zoned. I put in all the, you know, I rescued her in the Hunger Games. She now, I she does, should be my girlfriend, even if she doesn't trust me because of this and that and stuff like that. Um and yeah, so I, I feel like to me, it's not his origin story in that it's a here's why he is who who he is. And these are kind of the turning points where the last possibilities of him not being a villain are closed off mm-hmm. and will help. This will help you understand and explain how he becomes this kind of mm-hmm. person, because mostly evil, you know, people don't just wake up and decide, wahaha, I'm going to be evil. Yeah. But yeah, it's not it's not it's not the justification he kind of he could have been good in mm-hmm. but, you know. It's interesting because I I saw I saw someone say that word it as it's a villain continuation story and I agree mm-hmm. because by the end of the book and and the movie, he is on the same path that he wanted to that he was trying to start out on at the beginning. So it's not, like you said, it's not like he was trying to start off on on this path to do good. Um, He supported the Hunger Games. He didn't care about it. It's like he he wanted to be, joked about being future president of Penn M. He he wanted to carry on his father's legacy and the Snow family legacy. And and that's exactly what he does by the end. And so when I I think about where this all goes in the book, it's, it's kind of like, I guess he's not, he's not so much what the capital made him. He's what the capital hoped for. Yeah. If that makes sense. And yeah. he, he gave the capital what they wanted their people to be. And mm-hmm. a lot of that comes from rather than him being manipulated or him being, being pushed to something was him seeing 
the worst side of himself and not shrinking away from it, mm-hmm. but wanting to excuse, wanting to find a, a, a reason for that side of him so that he could keep doing it. And I think what he found was that it gave him a lot of a feeling of power. It gave him uh, a feeling of strength and that he could use that to carry on his name, his name's legacy, his family's legacy. And so he searched for anything that would maybe not so much justify that, but explain it. And, yeah. and that explanation was that humanity is naturally evil. And because he understands that, then he is the supreme of humanity. He is, mm-hmm. he is overlooking everybody because no one else understands this, but he does and he's accepted it and he's fully kind of like dove into that. Yeah. And, and that gives him the most power. And so while I, he likely wouldn't have been like that if it weren't for the Capitol and he did have a chance to go off and not do that, um, it... He, he took what he was given and he just kind of nurtured himself, which is why I say is he, he nurtures himself into evil just as much, if not more, than the capital does. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it, especially because, and this is, I think, the part where a lot of people might see it as, oh, you're justifying him. But to me, it it humanizes him in a way that I think is necessary to understand mm-hmm. how he becomes the evil he is. He does wrestle with it. He does have some periods where he's like, do we really have to do these Hunger Games? Mm-hmm. And he clearly, like, as a mentor, he builds a human connection with Lucy Baird that allows him to realize he has seen people in the districts as non-human and thus the Hunger Games was okay. And he has this kind of middle period of being like, maybe this is wrong. Maybe we shouldn't be treating them like this. Maybe people in the district are not quite so bad. But then again, where if this is a, a hero origin story, he has the moment of being able to to... Uh, transpose that to everyone else, mm-hmm. but he just can't do that. He can't take that step. And that's why I, I, I like the continuation story. I, I might even call it like the villain road not taken story, you know, because <laughs> he gets to that moment where he could, he could, he, his conscience wars with it, but he make, as you said, I think he makes peace with his conscience. Mm-hmm. And one thing I really loved is also in that he's not alone. Yeah. Most of the mentors wind up, some of them start out not loving the Hunger Games. As you said, uh, Dean Highbottom, who is played by Peter Dinklage, who continues to be an incredible uh, mm-hmm. uh, actor. Um, and really, you know, for most of the, the book and the movie, we think he's just this awful Dean who hates Corneli- Coriolanus and hates his father. We find out that he kind of, he had the idea from the Hunger Games as this like drunken way of thinking of an assignment. He never thought it was going to be real. Coriolanus's father stole the idea, made it real. And now he's had to live with this horrible guilt, and he wants the Hunger Games to end. And so he's trying to stop Coriolanus because Coriolanus is real. Like, one of the things Coriolanus realizes is the Hunger Games can't work if we just see them as animals because then we don't care. But also, if I and all the other mentors start to see them as human and relate to them, then that won't work either. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of gets to the point, as you said, in the the, the, the original books where it's like they're, they're humanized, but it's made in like, oh, no, but they love being in the Hunger Games. Look how yeah. happy they are. Look at all the prizes they get, you know, yeah. because like to me, seeing that a lot of the people in the Capitol were really uncomfortable with all of it happening mm-hmm. was it felt a lot more real to me, you know, yeah. and it, it I really love that. It's like, unfortunately, like Snow says, they need someone to root for. 
because yeah. if you don't have anyone to root for, then what's the point of watching the games? If you don't think yeah. that they're going to have a life that you can follow afterwards, what's the point of a winner? Right. And I just, I love that connection of how everything that, that snow comes up with in the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is exactly what comes around to bite him in the behind mm-hmm. <laughs> with Katniss. It's yeah. like, uh, and you know, inadvertently Katniss takes everything that he made for this game and uses it against him. And I think that that's just so poetic. <laughs> it really is. It really, I, I will say, and this is just more of a literary criti- criticism and you may very much disagree and we'll go back to the, the ethics questions. I kind of wish this was set in a different district. Hmm, other because than to me, because it is so much that there, there's a lot of little things like the hanging tree song. Um, one of the big plot points with Lucy Gray is her going to get the literal plant called Katniss that Katniss herself is is named after. And so I kind of it. The fact that he had always seen like we never got any sense that he had any personal connection to District Twelve or personal feelings about a tribute from District 12 who might win or that Katniss had any significance to him or the Hanging Tree song had any significance to him. And I also just thought it would have been a great opportunity to really explore another district. So that was my, if I have any quibble with the book movie, it's that, like, they make it really work that it's from 12, Mm -hmm. but I kind of wish that it hadn't been. I think, I, I get your point, and I do understand it to an extent. I think I like it. I think it works for me because Snow's, vendetta against Katniss is so personal it's so personal to the point where Mm. he will make moves that aren't strategically sound to win a war just to get to her because Mm. I think and I I was thinking about this the other day when I, I made a video about the Hunger Games was that a lot of times you know you could argue the reason Snow loses the war is because he's not thinking like he wants the capital to win he's thinking that he wants to win his own personal war and his personal Mm -hmm. war is with Katniss because she went up to him because she kind of turned everything that he had built around on its head and so I think seeing that she's using all of the things or not just her but her and Peeta are using all of the things that he views as nourishing in Lucy Gray and them coming from the same district that she was at is like an extra jab. And it kind of helps helps me see, I think, a little bit more why his vendetta against Katniss would be that personal. Because it's she uses yeah. the songs, like all the songs she sings uh, in, in the arena uh, during the rebellion are Lucy Gray's songs. And yeah. that's like a reminder to him that oh yeah, he didn't actually know that she died. She is haunting him the way that High Bottom said she would. And right. and then there's um, just like her using everything from District 12 against him. And then there's Peta being almost like Lucy Gray in that he's an artist who is being forced to kill. And mm-hmm. Katniss is, like Rachel Zegler said in an interview, Katniss is a, is a, a kind of like a survivor who's being forced to perform Lucy Gray mm-hmm. is a performer who's being forced to survive or fight. And mm-hmm. and so I think those parallels, because of those parallels work for me, I will say there were some things that were a bit on the nose. Um, like the, the Katniss plant mention, I think, <laughs> didn't need to be in there. And I wonder how much of that was Suzanne Collins putting that in and how much, like, maybe they were like, oh, let's do a little connect, like, direct yeah, connection to Katniss. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's, that's very fair. But, yeah, I, I do take your point, though. I, I would like to explore some of the districts more 
Yeah. And if she ever writes anything else. And I think I agree with you very I'm like I'm very much with you about it being his vendetta. Yeah, I think he he loses the war because he's trying to beat Katniss. He's not trying to beat um uh District 13 and the rebels. I, I guess to me it kind of takes away a little bit from Katniss, and really this is just. And you can listen to my Star Wars pre, uh, podcast if you want more thoughts on this. I just always don't like prequels that kind of seem to add something that wasn't mm-hmm. the end. Of, like, it, it, yeah. But I, I will say that there's one thing that's in the book that's not in the movie, which is that it gets revealed that all of the the kids in the the group that um, Lucy Gray is from, it's called the Covey. They're kind of like traveling musician types. Um, that are all named after songs or poems. And she is named after Lucy Gray, which is a poem from Wordsworth, uh, William Wordsworth, which is about a girl who becomes a ghost who kind of still haunts them. So in some ways, like, that is a great uh, tie-in with the Katniss thing. Mm-hmm. Um, back to Coriolanus, though, and then let's get more into Lucy Gray. In terms of seeing him as a villain, because, again, I think this is one of those things where it's like, how do we find the lines of explaining versus justifying? You're right, I think, that he, he makes the choices himself. I think it's also, though, very clear that, like, this isn't a kid who came from a family that would be horrified. Like, he very much becomes not only who the capital wants him to be, but very much who his family, especially his grandmother, the grand ma'am, as they refer to her. And the books and the movie, I think, do a great job of really showing, you know, the horrible deprivation he grows up in and the way to which his mother, his grandmother has just, you know, treated him to, like, you are a snow, you are the best of the best. She's the one who's saying to him every day, you're going to be President Snow again. The district people are so beneath you and all this stuff. How does that affect your feelings about him? Again, like, I think clearly I don't think it justifies it for either of us, but in terms of, like, the choices he makes, that upbringing that he has. I, I, so I think it was very intentional that Suzanne Collins gave him one relative who raised him who was very adamant that the capital was correct and that's his grandmother and mm-hmm. one relative who also raised him and who arguably was much closer to him who sees the humanity in everybody and makes it clear that she doesn't agree with the hunger games and that's tigress and um to see the way that that diverges his grandmother wants him to be exactly like his father tigress warns him about being exactly like his father and says Mm -hmm. that it might you know she says i remember that he was i remember his eyes they were cruel they were cold and at the end when she says i think you look very much you look exactly like your father coriolanus instead of calling him corio and like that was an addition in the movie they didn't have that line in the Mm -hmm. book and i thought that was such a good one because it shows it helps to show what we can't get in the movie that we do get in the book and that's the the people who care about him are seeing that change. And yeah. and Tigress lets him know, like that's her way of letting him know that she doesn't approve without yeah. completely, you know, like just leaving him or whatever because she can't, she can't go off on her own. And and so I think it's it's that push and pull. It's that that balance mm-hmm. kind of. He is existing in in the middle of one person trying to steer him the negative way and one person trying to steer him in the positive way. And it's up to him which side he chooses. And I I, I see the, it, it, I think it, it's that, that question of, of nature versus, versus nurture again. What is his nature? What is his nurture? What happens when you have multiple people trying to nurture you in different directions? Yeah. And And I think it's a question that's maybe not necessarily supposed to have an easy answer. 
because so many people make the different choices. Yeah. Some, someone else who is exactly in Coriolanus's position might make a different choice. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that that is just like, it's supposed to be a mixture. It's yeah. not supposed to be one major thing over the other. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it because I, like, I do think that that background makes a big difference because mm-hmm. I think there are people who don't get brought up in situations like that and still become horrible. Mm-hmm. There are people who get brought up in situations like that who do become horrible, who, who don't become horrible. Mm-hmm. But also I think like, you know, I think he stands out from the rest of the capital, but knowing that most of the capital probably grew up in circumstances like him, at least of his generation and beyond, like, yeah, it helps you understand how the capital all became the capital. And I think one of the things that I've really come to is that the reason why understanding villain stories is so important to me mm-hmm. is not to justify it. It's because I feel like when I can say, to, when I can look at someone else and go, oh, that character is a villain and they're just always been evil, they were born evil, I never have to worry that I'm going to become them. Yeah. I never have to ask myself, you know, but when I can look at someone like, you know, if I can put myself in Coriolanus's shoes, I can somewhat understand. I, I think I'd make different choices, mm-hmm. but I can understand that a person could think they were making the right choice by making the choices he does. And and that's horrifying, but it also helps me to feel like, you know, because I think I think that's the thing is that with that generation, you, ha- you, still, you have to break the cycle rather than mm-hmm. just be like, oh, this is bad. People need to cho- choose better. Yeah. And I think that it's like that's the beautiful part, I think, of for me, especially literature, but it's like this in multiple artistic mediums as well, um, is that it allows us a space to explore that and, yeah. and to come to an understanding with it when we might not really be able to do that in our real lives. Like the, the very evil people that, you know, exist in the real world, you don't really want to. And it, and it would kind of be harmful to others to take a minute and be like, hey, now let's talk about how this person became the way that they are. Or like, or like you know, like let's understand him after he's caused the deaths of, you know, millions of people. Um, but literature gives you that space to do that because yeah. it's not a real person that you're talking about. It's, it's someone with a, an entire arc and you know their entire story. You eventually know their entire story. And so it it allows you to to kind of use that that critical thinking that maybe you don't want to use on real people. Yeah. But then yeah, once you once you learn that, then you can start applying it in in more uh, yeah. you know more uh, generous ways, I guess. I mean, one thing that I kept thinking about, and this is kind of making, and again, I I, I think there's lots of other examples of the kind of thing this story is about than just what's happening in Gaza today, but it's just so much on our minds. You know, my father was born in a Jewish family in 1941. Uh, he, he grew up Jewish, and my sister and I were both raised kind of interfaith, but I was exposed to a lot of that. And one of the things that becomes very obvious, like talking to my father and talking to the, the his friends of that generation, was they were raised Jewish immediately after the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And they had a very strong sense of, like, we need Israel because literally the entire rest of the world was shrugging its shoulders while we were being genocided. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, my father, I think, like a lot of other people of his generation, have started to become very much more critical of, like, what Israel's done and kind of lost a lot of that sense, mm-hmm. um, but still has some of it. But it, to me, that's that, like, that was in my head while I was watching Snow and Tigris as kids in the city where everything was being bombed and, like, people were cannibalizing each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that sense of, like, 
yeah, that utter terror can drive people to do some horrible things when it's then not balanced with the empathy of, wait, but these other people are also feeling terror. What does that mean? Yeah. You know? I guess it's it's that that terror um, amplified by by people who want to take advantage of it. I guess, yeah. Yeah. Um, who see who see the the potential for power and the potential for control, and and use that terror in the in the worst way, instead yeah. of, instead of instead of a- aiming to calm it and to to bring it to a more level head, um, they just feed it and feed it yeah. by by saying how how horrible the dis- you know in the Hunger Games how horrible the districts are, um, look what they've done like whenever one of the mentors dies. Or, or is killed by one of the the tributes. They mm-hmm. they say how awful that this has happened. How could they do this? We will make sure that they never do this again. When it happened while they were doing these horrible things to <laughs> these yep. tribute or these uh, district kids, and and it's just like you wonder like how can how can that coexist? And then you see it happening today, <laughs> like yep. literally happening today. Um, it's just it's wild. And like I said, it's such a surreal experience to be consuming this when it is so reflective of Mm -hmm. of current things current events yeah no it's true and i i I like no i think it's so true and i think one thing that we really see that that's what snow is so good at is figuring out how to manipulate that not only just in the capital but in the districts themselves you know and i i'm not a gale defender and i know you i'm sorry (laughs) I'm not a Gale defender, and I you very much are not a Gale defender. <laughs> but early in the books, you know, um, Katniss says something about how, you know, like the, you know, the needing to beat the careers, the people in these other districts, and Gale says something like, "No, remember it's the capital; they're the enemy." You know, mm. and and I've always thought that's such a, a poignant thing, and that, um, you know, Gale obviously gets, but we you can hear all our thoughts on <laughs> Gale by by listening to those other episodes. But that's, you know, because yeah, it's it's the. Can you make people focus on their fear to the point that they can't allow themselves to have empathy for the people they're afraid of? Yeah. And that's just so much what The Hunger Games is about. Yeah, that's true. Um, let's talk to about Lucy Gray then somewhat. Um, yeah. what What's kind of your thoughts on her character and her journey? Uh, and let's start with the book because in yeah. the book, she's entirely from Snow's perspective and and he's he has a lot of paranoia. He has a lot of entitlement. Um, and we, I don't think we ever really get a picture of her because we get it all through his eyes. Yes. I, from the book, was left with so many questions about Lucy Gray. And I think that that was the intent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that because it is Snow's perspective, it's not first person, but it is thir- third person limited. So all we're getting is his thoughts about her. And they're so biased uh, mm-hmm. by his own like possessive feelings, as you said. Um, but also just like his inability to see things outside of himself. <laughs> um, yeah. and so I never know, like, does Lucy, does Lucy Gray actually love him? Does she have any of those feelings for him? Um, is, is she being manipulated by him too? What are all these things? I just had so many questions and I didn't mind yeah. the, the ending being ambiguous, her ending being ambiguous. I thought that that fit very well narratively, but yeah. I just was like, I have no grasp of her as a character. And it yeah. confused me because I had a firmer grasp of Sejanus from the book as a character yeah. and so many of the other characters I had a grasp on, but Lucy Gray, I just, I didn't. And, yeah. and that was my one critique of the book actually was, I, I would have liked a better grasp on her, but I also understood that it might be the intention that she is just so like, um, ethereal kind of, and just, you know, mm-hmm. not, we're not able to, to truly understand her. And so I was excited for the movie because 
that wasn't just going to be from Snow's perspective. So this op- opened up an opportunity to to explore her from different perspectives. Yeah, and I think they did an excellent job on that. Rachel Zegler, I think, did amazing. Yeah, she's so good. And, and I want to get to what the movie shows about her. I don't want mm-hmm. to just to focus on her in the book. I agree with you. And I think it's it it's both a pr- like I struggle with it, but I think it's part of the point is that he never actually knows her. He only knows her from his own perspective. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one thing I was really I kept thinking about and I, I made the joke about the incel, but I think that there's a lot of truth there. Yeah. Um, one thing I've seen both in terms of like reading about uh, this perspective a lot and how it like is a part of the kind of the incel thing, but also, you know, I have friends who are who have been, you know, are, or are, you know, currently like, you know, strippers or OnlyFans people and stuff like that. And they talk about like, you know, part of their job is to flirt and part of their job is to make these guys think that no, 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 the, the rest of the guys, are, you're, you're the one I actually really like. And that a lot of the guys, though, don't get that and forget that it's a you know that, that that it's part of the game they're playing and it wraps up with all these feelings of entitlement and stuff like that and I think by the end of the book it's fairly clear that that's not necessarily what's happening mm-hmm. but for a lot of the book I think there's a like I think that is one way to have read it yeah um particularly and, and maybe that well you know because I think from her perspective like it's not even a job. It is survival. Yeah. She knows flirting with this guy is maybe the best way to get his attention and to get his help. And, you know, she, I, she definitely mentions in the book, I don't think they mention this in the movie, but they imply in the book that she says at one point, flirting is part of my job. Yeah. And there are some assumptions that possibly, you know, it has gone further and that she has had to use her body at some point to to help feed her family and stuff. Uh, in a wonderful parallel, because it's also implied that Tigress has had to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it Snow really wrestles with that. And and so, yeah, so I think, like, I'm not trying to say that she the character is or isn't a sex worker, like, by any means. To me, though, it's just that that dynamic of the flirtation and the entitlement of the massive power imbalance between the two of them it mirrors that a lot for me. And I think I think you can read this as she is a very sweet, naive girl who falls for him completely legitimately. I think you can read this as someone who is playing him from the from day one. And I don't in any way like that sounds negative. I don't in any way blame her. I think that's a completely legitimate survival mm-hmm. technique. I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And, and I love that the book just leaves it incredibly open. Yeah, I I love your um, perspective and input on that because that is so much how I felt in the first part of it. I was like, she absolutely does not love him. <laughs> like he's mm-hmm. crazy. <laughs> she just, she does not like you at all. But then as the book progressed, I was like, oh, well maybe there is something that she feels there, but I have no idea. And, and like, that's how Coriolanus is throughout the entire book too. Does she love me? Does she not? Is this real? Is it fake? Mm-hmm. Is, uh, am I risking everything for someone who's just gonna, you know, F off back to the districts and, and, and doesn't care about me back to her, back to her ex. And, and so I can see like, maybe we are supposed to go through that, that same type of of feeling is not really knowing and not really trusting her because Coriolanus never really trusts her. I truly believe that no matter what he says, I don't think he really trusted her. I think Lucy Gray maybe came to trust him for a little bit, but I don't think he ever actually truly trusted her. Yeah. I, I think he trusted her when he thought she was too stupid or too naive mm. or too district. to ever, yeah. And he, he talks later in the book. Again, the movie kind of spares you this because I think it makes you hate him a lot more. <laughs> yeah. But he talks about, like, I just need to find a stupid wife. You know, I don't yeah. want someone who I ever have to mentally worry about, mm-hmm. um, which 
you know, um, when you see some of the age gap relationship, not that younger people are stupid, but like uh, there's, a, there's a whole other topic there. But I think there's a lot of stuff about, you know, men often seeking out relationships that they don't mm-hmm. think are going to challenge them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of what he wrestles with here because he he wants her to be the adoring girl who is just so out of her mind happy that someone like Snow would deign to pay attention to a lowly district girl like her. Yeah. And he goes he goes to great lengths in his mind in the book, I think, to to separate her from the districts, but he also treats her exactly like that. Like you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. yeah. he, he needs to make sense in his mind of why he would be in love with someone like her. And he can't allow himself to be in love with someone from the districts. And so he uses the caveat of, well, Lucy Gray doesn't view herself as being district. Right. She's not technically from District 12. She's from all over. And there's got to be some capital influence in there somewhere. Yep. <laughs> and, and it's it's just, uh, it's so awful. Like, truly, like, people don't, people who only watch the movie and don't read the book, I'm just like, you are missing some of the most heinous thoughts mm-hmm. that Snow yep has and people who did read the book and seem to forget about it i'm like how can you (laughs) i was cringing every other page i mean i i mean i was a bit of that myself like i was watching the movie and i was like oh yeah i really feel for this snow guy i I, for some reason i thought i had a much more negative view and then i read the book and i was like oh right okay okay it's also Um, the the power of of tom blythe's acting because I wanted to say that he's just too charming, but I genuinely think Snow comes off that way. Like, yeah. that's how he manipulates everyone. And and we have to remember that, like, I guess us as the readers, we're in his head, so we know his most private thoughts, even if he is yeah. manipulating himself, um, which I could go into a whole other thing about that, about how that's why it's so important for it to be third-person limited instead of first-person, because he needs to be manipulating himself as well, so it can't be mm-hmm. as honest as first-person requires. Um, but... Out outwardly, he's fooling everybody except for High Bottom, and yeah. you know he, everyone sees him as this very charming, very gentlemanly like figure. And so I think Tom Blythe actually played that perfectly because yeah, really there are good. moments, like especially at the end, oh, his acting at the end is so so good, where you genuinely see that he is he's he's crazy, <laughs> like he's yeah. he's lost it, um, but he's so charming for a lot of it, and I think that that adds to the. The confusion in our minds when we're yeah. watching him on screen. Well, because I think one thing the movie does show really well is that, like that power dynamic I talked about, once they're in District 12, that power dynamic is upended. Mm-hmm. She has a lot more social... He has the gun and he has power, but she has a lot of social power. And at the end, she she walks away from him. And mm-hmm. he, like, he's, he's just so like, what did I do? I didn't do... You know, <laughs> after she just found out that he killed his best friend. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that's, again, such the incel moment of, like, oh, what, just because I, like, voted for this person you don't like or whatever? Like, you know, and just because I hate all your queer friends? Like, you suddenly don't <laughs> like me? Why can't you date me? Like, And you're not going to love me after I saved you from the hunger? <laughs> like, like, you owe yeah. me because I saved your life <laughs> from a it's horrible all entitlement. thing. Yeah. And, it's, and, I, and I think, yeah, the, the, the inner monologue really sets up how much he is the – and, again, this is, I think, the, like – you listen to people who talk about like you know make america great again or the lost days of america or mm-hmm. you know in in britain you know the bring back the good old days of the empire yeah. that's like from page 1 he's talking about the snows have to be on top again because mm-hmm. that's where we used to be you know back in the good days when the capital ruled yeah uh, um one quick thing i just want to say about lucy covey uh lucy baird lucy gray baird and being from the covey i i do like that the the 
the way it's set up is kind of like a family of choice that travels around and does music and also is really into like really colorful like outfits and stuff like that fits a lot of the stereotypes that people often have of the the G-word slur that was then often associated with the Romani. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that never in this, there's never anything that indicates like these are actual Romani people. Mm-hmm. Because I think the, the truth is that there were Romani people who did that kind of thing. There were also a lot of other people of different ethnic descent mm-hmm. who did that kind of thing, but adopted a lot of the lifestyle and the, you know, aesthetic of what became known as the, the G-word slur mm-hmm. of the Romani. And... And many have moved, and the idea that hundreds of years later that, you know, neither of those words would be used anymore. They'd just be these different family groups. And I mm-hmm. I really like how they played that, and they gave little hints of it being kind of from that, but clearly very different, and not, they didn't explicitly name either of those things. I really appreciated. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting. And and also the, the way that the capital stifled them, because mm-hmm. their their lifestyle was traveling from one place to the other and right. and you know spreading their art to other people and you know that was their way of life and the capital shut that down just as much as they shut everybody else yeah. down and then relegated them to you know one of the worst things you could probably do to them was to keep them from being able to share their art with with everybody with you know for the cubby mm-hmm. and and how different that looks from the districts but how it's the same thing in the end yeah. Yeah. And well, especially because one thing we learn both in this, but especially in the in the originals is that, you know, you keep the district separate. You mm-hmm. can't have the districts empathize even with each other. And yeah. so you can't have them have any contact with each other. Like, you know, I, I you know, if really the only way you see the other districts is when their children are trying to kill your children. Of course, yeah. you're going to hate them. Mm-hmm. You know, what did you think of Reaper? Uh, Reaper is a character who he's from District 11. Uh, he has that name. Everyone thinks it means he's because he's this, like, you know, killing machine. But no, he's just a farmer. It's like a, a farming nickname they give because, as we've established, District 11 is, is where a lot of the farming is. And he, in, in the book, he comes off as, like, well, again, from Snow's perspective, he's kind of crazy. He he, he says that he apologizes to all the other tributes, that he's going to have to kill all of them. He, he winds up lining up all the bodies and, like, ripping apart parts of the Capitol flag to cover them. Um, and it, it's funny that because from Snow's perspective, he is portrayed as being so off the deep end that I think I remembered it as him going way more off the deep end, that he does some weird rituals with the bodies or he, like, becomes a cannibal himself or something like that. And actually, no. The movie shows and the book, actually, when you really pay attention, he's just honoring the dead mm-hmm. in a way that no one else is um, and winds up not really fighting anybody as much as he can avoid doing so. Uh, what do you think of his character and what he had to oh, say? I loved it. I loved yeah. I, I, I You're right that I remembered it being a little a little crazier than, than what it actually was um, because I watched it and I was like, God, I didn't get this emotional about it. Like I remember being emotional reading about him you know, dragging the bodies together and so that mm-hmm. they could all be together and, and everything like that. Um, but seeing just like the pain in him, especially after, um, after is, was it Dill? His, his other district, mm-hmm. the other district yep. tribute from his district. Um, yeah. And after seeing her die, 
and he just kind of like he lost it but in the in the best way like the best way i think a person could lose it in the mm-hmm. in the games which is to to embrace his humanity instead of letting it go and mm-hmm. and that was to to show love to the tributes who had fallen and i thought it was so beautiful like that moment was was genuinely one of the most beautiful of the movie i think and alongside him when the snakes come in and him just accepting like he's like i don't want to fight this i'm like yeah. he was ready he's like yeah. i've i've been through enough i'm done it really was and that was so sad i cried during that part of it mm-hmm. yeah it was it was really hard to watch and they i think his character was great i thought all of the, the 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 contestants they had the the tributes the the sacrifices the kids sacrifice is the wrong word the slaughtered kids there was a lot of diversity in that group um mm-hmm. not just like racial um though I did think that was kind of cool and they like there was kind of a sense of like you know capital versus district matters much more than like the racial mm-hmm. ideas of the past um but like um you know uh, I think in part because also we're now at a time when no one's volunteering so it really is just like yeah. whoever gets picked. There was a kid with only one arm, who I mm-hmm. think the actor only had one arm, which was great. But also, um, Wovi, who is uh, one of the tributes, and she's in the book. They just mention that she's very kind of like small and and seems helpless. Uh, the her disability is never named of any kind in the movie, but she's portrayed by an actress, Sonia Sanchez, who has Down Down syndrome, mm-hmm. and. But she's also not just a completely helpless, oh, look how disabled and broken she is. She mm-hmm. survives towards the very end. Yeah. Um, and I loved that on so many levels because of the, like, A, just, like, it does make you, like, your heart go out of, like, this is a person who does not have a lot of the same abilities as the others, but they're thrown in, and that's that's horrific. But also, like, but no, she's not just a helpless victim. And the fact that it's an actress who has Down syndrome, which when I grew up, that would have been a thing that would have seemed impossible because we mm-hmm. had such an ableist view of what people with that kind of uh, disability was like. People today with Down syndrome have wonderful, full, you know, fulfilling lives in a lot of ways, um, in, in all the ways in some cases, and can be great actresses like I thought Sophia was. She so, was phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. I cried. I cried at, uh, when she said, when she comes running out, when the um, snakes are dropped. Mm-hmm. And she says, is it time to go home? I just want to go home. And oh I was God. like, oh, I bawled. So... I cry. I could cry just talking about it now. But she like, and that is down to her acting. She's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. It was so well done. It was the childlike nature of it was just, and she was a child quite mm-hmm. literally. And one of the things just on representation, and this is something that uh, a lot of folks may not have any idea of, which I think it makes it all the better. The actress who plays Tigress, uh, Hunter Schaefer, is herself a trans woman mm-hmm. um and she's must best known for the tv show euphoria where she's playing a trans character in this she's playing a character who her transness or cisness is never mentioned in any way i think it's certainly possible she's trans it's never really been explored before but there's nothing about the acting like the acting performance that makes you think she has to be mm-hmm. and i think it's entirely possible to walk away that this was a cis woman being played or more importantly it's just it's a woman mm-hmm. and whether the character is cis or trans is irrelevant and whether the actress is cis or trans doesn't matter because it's just it is a woman portraying a woman and doing a phenomenal job in the acting. God, and Hunter Schaefer is amazing. She is so good. Absolutely just, amazing actress. <laughs> that I, I don't know if there have been many other cases of trans actors or actresses um, playing parts that 
where their transness isn't a part the mm-hmm. act the actor's transness doesn't correlate to the character in some way yeah um so yeah it just there may and there may have been more but it just really realizing that and that they in no way made a big deal of it in any way was just like this is so great and can we also talk i mean this i'll just mention this really quickly but i think hunter schaefer's first professional acting was euphoria mm-hmm. and then she went like straight from that to this and yeah. I'm just like the talent in someone so young mm-hmm. is amazing. I feel like there there's a bright future ahead for her really, really and is. for us to be able to watch her. Yeah. yeah. I I will say that's my one other like you didn't have to make it all line up so cutesy. <clears throat> uh, or let me just that is my one other like you don't have to make it all line up because I think the clear indication is that this character, her cousin Tigress, is the same woman who helps uh, Katniss and the others mm-hmm. in the Hunger Games, who clearly has so much bitterness towards Snow. Mm-hmm. Um, A, because for that to work, she that person has to be in her late 80s, since Snow is 82, mm-hmm. based on, you know, if we do the math that he was um, uh, 18 years old by the 10th Hunger Games, and so it's 68 years later, so 83 maybe. Um, so that I did, I wish they had given her a different name instead of having to be like, oh, that's the Tigress. Um mm-hmm. But other than that, I thought her character was just phenomenal. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I I would argue that maybe just Tigress is just so beautiful that she ages, mm-hmm. ages phenomenally. Yeah, it's certainly possible. <laughs> it's certainly possible. It, it, it would take some more. I, I Yeah. I, I want to know more of that story, though, because it does feel like Snow is not in a way that makes him a good guy because it's very much like hooray for my family and F everybody else. But mm-hmm. he is incredibly loyal and focused on helping his family. So it does make you wonder more about the falling out they had. But, yeah. Um, I, yeah. The, I, I imagine it probably came from her not wanting to be involved in anything, but her needing to rely on him for probably like the money that mm-hmm. was coming in. And yeah. so he probably forced her to do lots of things mm-hmm. um, for that. Possible. But um, I wanted, I wanted to, touch back really quickly on Lucy Gray in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, we didn't get into that. Like, yeah, what? because, like I said, I, I feel like I have such a better grasp on her character now and especially on whether, like, what her feelings were for Snow throughout because Rachel Zegler does such a good job at showing when Lucy Gray is performing mm-hmm. and when she's being genuine. And you can see the switch in certain scenes with Snow, where she goes from being kind of genuine to an absolute performance. Yeah. And like, I've, anything I say to you right now is a lie. And and I thought that was so good at, at cueing the audience in on, she understands what's happening here. She knows what's needed of her right now. And she can turn that, she can flip that switch whenever yeah. she needs to. Yeah, I, I definitely got that sense. I think I also took away a little bit of a different sense, um, but but similar, which is that, you know, to get into a sto- into a question of like, how much is she in love with him? Is she manipulating him? Is she being manipulated by him? You know, all this kind of stuff. I also then have to ask, how much does a sixteen-year-old have any idea? Like, as sixteen, mm-hmm. I thought I was in love all the time. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have any idea what the hell I was talking about, and that's just me as a fairly privileged, like you know, well-treated. Uh, a kid here she has a lover who's kind of bad news she finds out that his her lover is probably cheating on her with a mayor's daughter because the mayor sends her to her death yeah. um 
And then she spends a couple of weeks fighting for her life. Like, I think she has every excuse in the world to have no idea what in the world she's feeling. Um, and I think you're going to disagree and go for it. But I just want to add in that regard, I think there's also a great parallel with Katniss that mm-hmm. both of them are in situations of like, maybe I'm feeling things, but also I need to feel things or have people think I'm feeling things. And like, I do think that there's a large sense of when she's performing and when she's not. But I think I got the sense of when she's not performing, she doesn't quite know what she's feeling yet because there's just so much going on. No, I absolutely agree. I don't, I actually don't think that that she was like fully in love with him mm-hmm. because like you said, she's just a kid. Um, yeah. what is, what is it at that point? Not that, not that teenagers aren't capable of feeling love. They absolutely are. And, but that's the thing is that it's very intense. The smallest yeah. thing can be very, very intense. And so I think you can feel it intensely, even if it's not like what you would call, you know, what, what, what we would call love, I guess. Right. But I think that that maybe stems from the fact that she grew to trust him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can see that is that whether or not that trust was because he earned it, which I don't think he really did, or because he was the person, like she associated him with survival yeah. when she was in the arena. He he was her only chance at getting out of there. And she admits that like he, mm-hmm. him doing whatever he could was her only chance of getting out of there. And so the fact that she did get out of there thanks to a lot of the things that he put in place for her, like the the poison, and I, she might have uh, guessed that the water bottles had something to do from him. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the she's so... Saved her for the snakes. Yeah, yeah. And she, she associated him with that. And so I think when she went back to District 12, maybe there was a, a sense of, of trust. And, and when he showed back up, he was probably the one person who could kind of understand what she went through in the same way that PETA is the only person that cat that can understand what Katniss went through. And she clings to that for a better reason, but, and a better person to cling to than Snow is. Um, But I think there's something to be said there for, for someone to have that connection when no one else around you knows what it was like, except for that one person. And so I think there's, there's some, feeling of just like not wanting to let that go maybe and Mm -hmm. and choosing to put some trust in it but then realizing that your trust was misplaced yeah i I think that's really accurate and we haven't even talked about the fact that snow himself does go into the arena and does Mm -hmm. kill someone in it's funny he physically kills a person there are two people who he literally kills Mm -hmm. one who he um you know kills in the arena the other who he shoots and I think they're two of the less evil acts he does in a really <laughs> weird way. Like, one, I think more so than the other, but like in the arena, someone's literally trying to kill him as mm-hmm. he's just trying to get Sejanus out, and he fights back in self-defense. And the other is the the love triangle again. The mayor's daughter finds out what's going to go happen, and she's going to go snitch and get them all hung. And he shoots her in the back. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think there's ways to – like, that's the, like – I think you could have done something better there. But I also am not totally like, oh, you just shot a helpless. Like, you shot someone who's planning to go off and get you all killed, you know? Um, I think it, it just shows the escalation. Like, once he starts, how yeah. much more insidious it gets after that. Because he gets a taste for it when he kills in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and you know, like, he's horrified by it for a little bit. But then he's like... Mm, that actually felt kind of powerful. <laughs> like, yeah. like you mean I could I had control in that situation? Like, 
he couldn't kill me. He tried to, but he couldn't because I, I did something yeah. about it. And then when he shoots uh, Mayfair, like you said, that is, he didn't have to do that. That wasn't really an act of self-defense. That was, you know, I'm going to get in trouble. I got to kill her. And then he tries to act like he did it for like Lucy Gray and he did it for Sejanus. And it's just kind of like, no, I think your priority was you there because you didn't mm-hmm. want to get sent away again. Yeah. Um, and then the, his next, inadv- not, not inadvertent because... I refuse to believe that he didn't know what would happen, what the consequences yeah. would be from his actions. Um, but his ultimate betrayal of someone who truly, genuinely, and wholeheartedly trusted him. Mm-hmm. And and that is the most insidious act, I think, that he does in the entire story for the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Far and away. Far and away. Yeah, and that we're talking about there is the betrayal of Sejanus. Yeah. Um, which is kind of, the, there is a great use of the Jabber Jays to make that happen, which yeah. I did think was really kind of cool. Oh, that was um, so painful. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I oh, where I was going that with is that, so so obviously that's one of the things that, that caused her to break the trust. I, oh, I but where I was going with all that, though, just originally, and just, just to finish up the Lucy Baird stuff, is I think part, that is part of why she trusts him, though, because he has had to kill the same way she does. Mm-hmm. But also because I think it's the – her trust is when I need you to come through for me, will you come through for me? Yeah. And in this case, he did. And in that way, I think she is actually a lot like Katniss, mm, um, yeah. which I love. Yeah. Um, which I'll also say in the kind of like the road not taken, there's a lot of YA books where we set something up where – Lucy Gray is like Katniss's great grandmother or something like that. And I'm really glad they didn't do that, you know, because that I think would have been just, but, but you know what I mean? There's a lot yeah. of books where they do that. So that, that would be too much. I think, I think Suzanne Collins is too proud of her mm-hmm. narrative abilities to do that. Yeah. Oh God. I, just, I, I don't want to bring this into mind, but like, I know there's some books out there where like, not only would it be Lucy Gray, but like they would have had one night together. And yeah. Now, Katniss is like, you know, the great granddaughter. Oh, God. Ugh. Okay. Bury that thought forever. Bury that thought forever. Any last things you want to say? We are going to have a bit of member content. We're going to talk about Edgar Allan Poe and the uh, fall of the House of Usher. But um, any other last comment you want to have about Hunger Games before we wrap up? Um, I just want to say that I'm really glad that the author of the Hunger Games is Suzanne Collins and that Suzanne Collins is someone who treats her little mini franchise very well mm-hmm. and with care and like i said at the beginning doesn't sing unless she has something to sing about yeah i appreciate that i think that's really true and i watching this movie i i had the same feeling i did with the originals and i i think i told the story before so i'll try and be brief and, and re- responding it but i saw like some interviews with her or no i actually an interview with the director who was saying that like for the first hunger games that one of the things that the director really felt, and this is in part because Suzanne Collins had wanted this, but also because this is what the director's feelings as well, is that if people walked out of the first Hunger Games movie wanting to like recreate the fight scenes because they were so cool, then they totally missed the point. Hmm. You know, because the whole point was, in some ways, a criticism, a critique of the way that violence is made into entertainment, and especially with young people and stuff like that, and. I know that was really important for Susan Collins, and I felt the same way here. Like, there Mm -hmm. were the scenes... The idea that violence can be entertaining in any way feels ridiculous, except, like, Mm -hmm. that's the whole... Like, it is, you know? I love watching the fight scenes in the MCU movies. Like, I like other things more, and if you just give me fight scenes, I'm going to get bored. But, yeah, like, there's something fun sometimes about watching those, and that's a whole other psychological evaluation. (laughs) 
But I've never felt like there was a cool fight scene in anything in the Hunger Games, mm-hmm. and I certainly didn't hear that. And I think that that's a way of remaining true to her original vision of like the horror is that the idea that the violence is entertaining, and so if the visual version makes the violence entertaining, we've totally missed the point. Yeah, I agree. Well, Danielle, thank you as always so much. We're going to have you on a little bit more in the bonus section, but for those who aren't sticking around, um, where else can they find you? What else are you up to these days? Uh, I'm on TikTok at Written in the Star Wars and Twitter or X uh, at DannyS394. And I am just like a mixture of things right now. The strike really made me have to focus on other stuff, so I'm still following mm-hmm. through on some of those things, um, but still mostly Star Wars. Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, I've loved all your Star Wars content. There's a lot of great stuff about the books that um, I, I felt bad, but you know, every now and then Danielle would put out a TikTok of, hey, during the strike, here's content that I want to talk about. And I would be like, cool, you can volunteer to do a podcast about that one as well. Uh, we, definitely, we definitely will be doing a podcast about Poe and the ho- Fall House of the Usher. We're going to give a little sneak peek of that. Of course, I'm the Ethical Panda ethicalpanda.com you'll find all the ways to contact us uh you can see this podcast you can also see the star wars universe podcast forgive me the star wars generations podcast has now been renamed we have two new co-hosts uh danielle will uh certainly continue to be a a wonderful guest as will a lot of others but myself aaron mcgowan and alex corman are now kind of rebooting the podcast with a real focus on what is it like to see see the podcast see star wars through the eyes of different generations, through different genders, through different perspectives, all different ways we see Star Wars. And it, I'm really learning a lot, and I hope other people will too. Check out all of that at theethicalpanda.com. Check out all the ways to contact me, which is all in the show notes. We have spoken. Run, run.